Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 65. My goodness, it is Brando. Welcome back. Took a little bit of a break. I try to do these episodes uh, weekly. I know it's not a strict schedule, but uh, you guys have just been so awesome with your feedback, and uh, I just want to keep churning out the episodes. The fact that I just keep getting awesome interviews uh, is another reason why I want to why I want to keep doing it, but I haven't had an actual weekend to myself and. In quite some time, but you don't care about that. What you care about is is uh, Alan Niven. Yes, he's uh, part two. We've I've been talking about uh, Alan coming back on the show, and uh, here he is. The fact that I got him the first time, still Alan, my most listened to episode. So I appreciate you uh, doing part two with me. So welcome to the show, Alan. Well, good to, good to hear from you, Brandon, and uh, you know, thank you for your your interest and your hospitality and um yeah you'd think people would have something better to do with their lives and listen to uh some old fool sitting on top of an arizona mountain <laughs> coffee and his smokes <laughs> people love uh you know what you have to say and i always say even just referring to myself and the show even when you're not on i just think it's crazy people listen to this show but people do and that's why i keep doing it i wouldn't just be doing it if i was just you know talking into a tin can with the string uh but people uh, yeah people listen to the the show and people we got a lot more attention after your episode where you you dropped some uh, i guess some breaking news at the time uh, a lot of time has passed between your 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 first appearance and now uh if, if people don't remember that's when you had mentioned uh izzy was uh, at a sound check in 2016 for not in this lifetime, but we can talk about Izzy and the sound check and all of that fun stuff uh, later because we got to catch up a little bit. Because you mentioned you're in Arizona, and uh, you know I'm I'm very appreciative because after our last uh, our first conversation, you and I have kept in contact uh, all through Mitch Lafon. Got to thank Mitch Lafon uh, with this, and it's we've been talking a lot about hockey, trading pictures of like the hockey jersey jerseys that we own. So uh, I try to keep this in real time. Uh, so this is May 31st. Did you watch Game 2 uh, last night of the Stanley Cup Finals between the, the Vegas Golden Knights and, uh, and the, the Washington Capitals? Well, ab- ab- absolutely. That's like asking uh, somebody highly committed to their religion if they made it to prayers or not when they do four times a day. Um, and, of course, at this time of year, it's bittersweet because we've just been through a period which is just magical, um, where you get a, a playoff hockey game every day. And now we get a playoff, the final playoff hockey games every three or four days. Um, but the, the first two games I've seen in, in the final have both been incredibly intense and competitive and could have gone either way. And 
a save here, a missed goal there. Um, you could have flipped the results on the first two games. There were, there were a couple of moments last night that were just stunning. I'm loving it. I know we're heard all over the world, but we have plenty of fans, of course, in the States and, and in Canada. And I would have thought uh, with both Mitch LaFon and even you that you would have been rooting for a Canadian team when the when the Winnipeg Jets were playing, uh, you know, the, uh, the the Knights. But I just think that's so that's it is very cool. But you have a, the whole thing now that you you're. I don't know. You like the the whole Canadian curse that's been going on in uh, in hockey? And you do you want the, the and you want the Knights to win, right? Their first year uh, in the league. I'd be happy for either team to win. Uh, I'd like to see Ovechkin uh, achieve. That's what, what I want. Working really hard for, uh, but it would also be fun to have a team that didn't exist a year ago blow everybody away. That would be a hell of a, a story and. An incredible life lesson um, all the way around. Be really cool. It would be really cool. So, uh, again, either I... Way, either, uh-huh. either, way I'm, either way, I'm watching good hockey, and that's enough for me. I'm enjoying it. I know. And just to make the GNR connection, there are rumors with a, uh, that they will add another expansion team in Seattle. So, you know, Duff McKagan will be happy because he's still pretty heartbroken over the uh, Seattle Supersonics leaving uh, in the NBA. So... Who knows? Maybe we'll see uh, Duff at a future NHL game being the spokesman for the NHL. Uh, I would like to see more of that. Uh, yeah, I'd be amused to see Duff on a pair of skates. I think that might be funny. I think so. I love when he talks sports. And he's got Melissa Reese involved in, in doing some sporting events. I think GNR even has gotten uh, both Brain and Melissa to do some uh, halftime shows at the NBA. So I like when they're, you know, when GNR is involved, other than the fact that we hear Welcome to the Jungle and Sweet Child of Mine at every arena across the world. That's great. But when the actual band is involved, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it is cool. Um, and, you know, the fact that the intro to Jungle is used so universally here in America on sporting events all these years later is pretty stunning and just from a a small personal level um, when I'm in a a hockey arena and I hear Slash's riff start and I have heard it before a couple of times it's amazing because when I hear the combination of a crowd responding to their team responding to the music it still gives me goosebumps as if I were in, a, in, a, in an arena watching the band, which is very bizarre to me that after all these years that I can sit there and, and I'll literally break out in goosebumps just like huh. back in the day. That is that is interesting because whenever I hear it, I have like GNR Tourette's when I call it, and whenever I hear those first few chords of welcome, I'm like, ooh, guns, like wherever I'm at, <laughs> I just get excited, so... Uh, who knows? Who knows? I'm, I've been championing for, uh, for them to play the Super Bowl uh, halftime show for quite some time because they just keep getting, other than, other than Lady Gaga, who I thought was great, they just usually get very boring acts. So I'm, I'm hoping more GNR ties uh, with sports. There's only, there's only been one credible Super Bowl halftime performance from my point of view, not that I'm known for having an opinion, um, but... That was Prince. I thought Prince was absolutely incredible when he did the halftime show, but most of them are just painful to watch. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were going to say Prince or if you were going to say Michael Jackson, even. Uh, nah, Prince. Yeah, no, no, Prince was one of the last... Uh, no, his was great. Because when they've had you know, Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty or The Who, 
I don't know. It's it's they don't have the stage presence. I think that a GNR or a Prince has for that kind of a of a show. Not that I di- didn't enjoy it, but uh, there there needs to be a new bar set. So hopefully we'll. We'll see uh, GNR in some incarnation play uh, the Super Bowl at, at, at some point. Well, no, mm-hmm. Slash did Slash did pop out of a uh, with Fergie, right? Yeah, with yeah, he Black Eyed Peas. He popped up out of the floor, um, but usually those situations they're not designed to maximize the performance and presence of a band, uh, and they tend to diminish a band rather than make it bigger, um, and that's why I thought Prince was just wonderful because first of all he played guitar just brilliantly that day and he was clever enough in the imaging not to be made to look smaller but made to look bigger and you've got to be really careful in those situations because most bands come off looking smaller than they are it is true. It's got to be a very unique uh, experience for a band or an artist to play that. It's not just it's not just any other show. You know, it's, it's certainly it's an event, and uh, the stage is different. And I don't know. I don't know. It's when my team isn't in it, uh, the Giants. Uh, I I don't care. That's the only thing I really look forward to is the the halftime show because I'm not a betting man. So uh, we'll see what the years uh, to come bring. Uh, well, well, yeah, I guess so. We'll just we'll find out, and we'll get your opinion then uh, next year. Hopefully, it's not uh, an in sync reunion or something like of that nature. But uh, Alan, since you're you're no, you're on the show solo this time because last time was with Mitch. You're going to get the full AFD treatment, so that means you're going to be a part of Shotgun News. And so, just be warned, I have a soundbite with this, and feel free to <laughs> critique the sound, the the short and sweet, very stupid soundbite. News. What do you think? Uh, well, now I know why the show's called Appetite for Distortion. <laughs> I don't have an official voiceover person, so I'm like, what do I just do to you know make this clever? I just said news stupidly myself and just put it in there. I don't know. Some people get a kick out of it, but uh, so we have a news segment at the, usually at the beginning of each episode. Um, so that's what this is about. It's kind of like what's you know going on in 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 the GNR world or going on in the podcast world. So that's what the the shotgun news segment is about. So uh, what is the news of the day then? Well, the first uh, news of the day is usually to reflect on our last episode because uh, I always want to say thank you to our previous guest, uh, which was Billy Rowe from uh, from Jet Boy. I don't know if you had any experience seeing them back in the day, but. Uh, we spoke to Billy, who and Jet Boy is putting out their their first studio record in 30 years, which is just fun, like amazing to me. And I, I can't. It's supposed to be out. I think he said in January of next year. And uh, he's going to come on again before. He's told me he's going to bring a special guest with him. We don't know who yet. He's throwing me some names, some big names. Uh, but I don't want to. You know, I, I don't want to put anything out there that may not happen so just again thanks to to billy Rowe and of course these subsequent articles put out by alternativenation.net about that interview um and he also put out there and i don't know if you came across this with your time with with, with slash but i wanted to talk to him about todd crew because i I'm, I'm i believe that's why guns of roses started doing knocking on heaven's door and there has been some 
I mean, when you lose somebody to a drug overdose and you're really not sure of what happened, there could be a lot of bad things have said in the press. And I know Slash put it in his book that, you know, of course, Todd died in his arms and Billy and the boys from Jet Boy had said there's no way Todd shot himself up because he was more of a drinker and they blamed Slash for a while. Just very awkward, very sad, no matter what way you look at it. Just sad is probably the key word. But what I thought was really cool, Billy, to say was, no matter what happened, only Slash knows, and that is just awful for him to live to live with. You know, the fact that he's sober now, that he has kids, no matter what happened, to carry that memory with you is painful. And he hopes, and because I put it out there, because GNR has gotten creative with some opening acts, that maybe Jet Boy and GNR will do a show together again, like they used to do before they both were big names. So uh, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on, on that, if you saw Jet Boy or um, just where Slash is now as a person or if you... I, I never saw uh, Jet Boy back in the day and only knew of them by reputation uh, and a sense of competition because there was Jet Boy, Faster Pussycat, LA Guns, Guns N' Roses. There was a pack of bands coming through um, LA at the time and from my point of view of responsibility um, I had to get my band ahead of the pack and I felt that very keenly uh, December of 86 I think it was um, when a, a local Los Angeles music publication called Music Connection put four bands on the cover that they thought might have a chance of getting somewhere in the following year and one of them was Guns N' Roses. And, of course, from my point of view, especially back in those days when I maybe had a little more piss and vinegar running in my veins, I looked at that and went, what are the other three fuckers doing there? <laughs> but the, 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 the pragmatic response was, here's, here's a sign from the universe, sucker, and you'd better pay attention. You, you see your band as special and better than the rest, but other people don't yet. So th that, that just went to informing more intently um, a sense of urgency and a sense of imagination of, okay, how do I get ahead of the pack? What's my strategy? How do I get them lifted above what we can see as a wave of bands coming through? How do I make sure that mine are properly recognized as being better than the rest absolutely because uh billy was saying that you know jet boy was looked at in the same class as guns N' roses at the time and you know it's no disrespect to the jet boy they just don't have the catalog they didn't have the hits it's they're, they're they were a great band i'm glad that they, they've gotten back together and making music but how do you get above the pack especially since they got somebody from hanoi rocks at the time but somehow gnr just kept fighting and, and, and getting through and you know you certainly helped uh, with that but th this ties into a lot of things like probably a common theme that we're going to talk about today throughout the subjects is just while people are still alive like what can you do so it was nice for Billy to kind of extend that kind of olive, olive branch whether Slash is aware of what he said or if it will ever happen to kind of have sort of that healing you know with the people who are still around 
So this kind of uh, moves on to the second item in, in Shotgun News, and this was uh, courtesy. I mean, I, this wasn't. Uh, I mean, this was news regardless, but this was brought to my attention from our buddy Mitch Lafon. Uh, so on this day, as we're recording this, uh, back on May thirty first, two thousand and two, uh, Izzy, your friend Izzy, was on stage at the O two Arena in in London, England, to play songs uh, fourteen years, first time since nineteen ninety one. You could be mine. Dead Flowers, Knock on Heaven's Door, Night Train, and Paradise City. So that happened, like, on the, like that happened, uh, so all that, that's uh, six years ago today. And think about, like, where we are in the six years since that's happened. Were, were you aware that that was going to, that Izzy was going to join, at that time in 2012, were you talking to him? Did you know that was going to happen, or did that surprise you? Um, it didn't, I, I wasn't aware he was going to do it, um, our conversation is uh, maybe we'll use the word random and unscheduled. Um, the last time I actually saw him face to face, he actually came all the way out to Prescott to visit me here. But um, that was a little bit of a surprise, and I thought it was an encouraging surprise. Um, when was that, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, it was a few years back. Okay. Uh, um but, you know, it, Izzy had gone to Israel only months after he left the band. Um, if I try and remember clearly, I think Gilby had, had had an accident with his hand, and uh, he he went out there to basically, uh, you know, fill in and save save the day. You know, so the fact that Izzy would occasionally play with, with Axel is... is not completely earth-shattering. It happens every now and then. I just think it's a shame it didn't happen permanently mm. uh, on on this go-round. Um, that would have been nice. Um, you know, I'd, I'm, I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit here. Sure. Um, there's been a couple of people who've asked me what I think about the box set release. Sure, that was going to be on the uh, the news segments, but we can you know, bounce around. That's That's no problem here. And for me personally, I think it's a little bit unfortunate. Um, actually, I might borrow a word from um, the esteemed manager of Guns N' Roses, Fernando, and use the word clueless because, unfortunately, he apparently was public in describing Guns N' Roses fans as clueless recently, which is a little bit of a shame. But um, with the box set... First of all, the pricing, I thought, was absolutely out of the park to ask somebody to pay $1,000 for a box set, um, especially since it's basically stuff that anybody who's a real fan of the band, they'd have found most of that stuff back in the day. Um, there were bootleg copies that I think uh, came from one band member's um, cassette of demos and um, I think Zootout even just found out which band member it was. But there were boot, copies, bootleg copies of the, of the GNR demos available in the cool vinyl stores in Manhattan before we even had Appetite for Destruction released. Hmm. You know, so they've been around forever. Um, so, I mean, the fact that the 
the demos are there is you know okay it's cool whatever um but let me walk you through this from my point of view sure because we, we've talked about the box set uh before you get into that we've talked about the box set on the, on this podcast and for me you know just because i haven't told you my opinion before you, you go off i know the listeners have so i won't you know bore them with it again but you know for the sake of me and you alan uh thousand dollars is just way out of my price range you know if i was howard stern and i can just you know throw that money away sure i mean there are some cool trinkets that go with it but the demos i mean a lot of these songs i've heard before you know shadow of your love yes i've heard that song you know different versions of it i like the remaster version of it i like it but as far as the thousand bucks go as far as like what i really want there are two songs i never heard of the plague and uh new work tune and that's it so i'm just not going to spend the money for it and i know it's going to be it's going to be available in about a month there are different price increments so if you can't afford the thousand dollars there are lesser packages available i believe in target as well um so okay so i just wanted to let you know where i where i'm coming from so i kind of i'm with you with all right. that all right we'll start we'll we'll start with the pricing and then we'll go to the creative. Sure. <laughs> now, as far as the pricing goes, um, I don't know if all your listeners are aware, but basically you can manufacture a printed CD for about 80 cents. You can press a vinyl record for a dollar if your run is big enough. And I'm not talking about a huge run. I'm talking about if you press a thousand records, it's going to cost you about a dollar a unit to press it. So there are your fundamental costs and the actual items themselves. All right, so keep that in mind. Um, now, let's look at it from a different perspective. Uh, I, rightly or wrongly, you know, we all have our own points of view, but my point of view is that rock and roll is fundamentally a blue-collar and working-class medium. And at its best, rock and roll does a couple of things. It brings people together by their own consent, but it also gives at its best, a voice to who I make, might call a disenfranchised. Sure. And if, disenfran- and if disenfranchised sounds a little scholarly, I'll take a phrase out of one of the songs. It gives a voice to urchins from under the street. To me, it's a fundamentally a blue-collar exercise, and part of its beauty and its power is that there are those that we have come to love who speak truth to power. And it's a medium where you can give the finger to the man and deservedly so. Um, part of the reason I, I love rock and roll is it's anti-authoritarian and anti-establishment. Sure. And I, can't, and I cannot imagine anything more establishment than rodeo drive pricing on a box set that is basically old music. That tells me that whoever is in the band or running the band has lost the plot in terms of who is your audience and how did you end up in Malibu? You ended up in Malibu on a wave of blue-collar response. That's how you surfed into that community. Mm. That bothers me. That really bothers me. That I look at who's going who's to spend $1,000 on a box set? One of your actor friends? Some of your model wife's friends, maybe, but who else? It's certainly not going to your fundamental audience. And that tells me that somebody somewhere has lost the plot. To use Fernando's word, I think it's clueless. Now let's talk about it creatively. 
mixing is probably one of the hardest things you do from a production point of view. Um, as a producer, you make sure the song is worthwhile and worth recording. You try and record the very best performance of that song, and then you have to mix it to make sure that that song reads. And in the mixing of Appetite for Destruction, I had the pleasure of watching Barbiero and Thompson mix, and they mixed manually. They did not use the automations of the board, so it was like watching two people dance, and they were utterly visceral in the way that they approached the task, and that kept it visceral, and it kept it physical, and that was one of the reasons why their mixes worked so well. Once you finish mixing, you have somebody master prior to getting the record made into a mother and pressing. And if back in the day you were fortunate enough to be able to get on George Marino's calendar at Sterling Records, you would take your mixes, which were hopefully realized to the maximum, to George, and he would do the mastering. And George, when he was alive, was the master of mastering. Go and look at his discography. It's not a matter of opinion, it's a matter of fact. You just have to look at who wanted him to work on their records and the records that he worked on. And when he was alive, he was the master of mastering. So, one, we have good mixes. Two, we have a mastering that nobody else could match at the time and certainly can't today. So to remaster something, to me, is merely a bullshit way of saying... This is how we're going to repackage and resell something. And I think it's invalid. And I think the ultimate sense of invality is that if we're still talking about this record 30, 35 years later, however long it's been, oh, yeah, we're a year late on the 30th anniversary. <laughs> you know. Yeah, the timing is, is interesting, to say the least. Yeah. yeah, we're a year late. You know, welcome to Guns N' Roses. Um, if that record is still in people's consciousness 30 years later, then I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that Thompson and Barbiero and Marino did their jobs brilliantly and got it right. You know, so the re whole remastering aspect of it is bullshit. Mm. Now, it's all well and good to, you know, get the shotgun down and, you know, sh shoot the fat pig, three-legged fat pig outside because um, you can't miss. Okay. What should, what should have been done? And as much as I think that the pricing is wrong, the content is wrong, and all the extra little bits and pieces are bullshit as far as I'm concerned, um, what might have been done is this. You're playing a theater in Harlem. Reconvene the original actual band that actually played on the record play it live from top to bottom and release that. And since you want to make it into something that's a little bit special, take the marquee recordings from 1987 that never got released and recorded on the Rackmobile and include that in the package. And that way you're honoring the past by being in the moment and maybe creating something that might have a future. And it'll have a future if you put a realistic price on it. So you've got, you know, four CDs, call it 20 bucks, call it 25 bucks. And there you've done something that's of the moment, honoring the past and worthwhile. I think the box set is just 
ridiculous. I, I can't argue with you too much because, again, that's why I wanted to preface it with my feelings to you because I, I know I haven't expressed it with you, uh, to you off air yet because um, I'm already priced out of it with everything that it comes with uh, other than those two songs I previously mentioned I've heard. Uh, yeah, it would be nice to hear some, some session stuff, but I, I like I, – I've heard these songs already and not for, not for that price. But you mentioned like all the little – you know, trinkets and things like that. Uh, this is going to come with, um, I mean, I'll give them credit later when we get to the question portion because uh, we had a lot of questions from you for from fans. But the second, I guess, release from this box set that has yet to be officially released was the It's So Easy video. And that obviously has been in the back burner for many a year. <laughs> like, like, do you know why it was, I mean, there, of course, there's speculation as to why it was shelved. It was shelved because I shelved it. And I shelved it because we were coming to the, clearly coming to the end of the, of the, uh, uh, the terminology is album cycle, um, which implies that there is a, you know, like, like an organic period of time on a record. But, uh, you know, and obviously not. Some records last five minutes, some records last two or three years. Um, We'd clearly come to a point where I did not want to promote um, Guns N' Roses anymore. We'd gone from being completely unknown and nobody gave a shit and wouldn't play us on the radio to, my God, how overexposed are we going to be and what kind of a monster are we creating in that we've got to make another record after this? How do we compete with this? Um, how do we compete with ourselves? Um, so we'd come to the end of the, end, end of, the uh, of the cycle with appetite, and we all agreed that as a kiss off, let's do one video where the band is live and in the cat house and it's intense, and just see if we can't capture the essence of the band as it was at the beginning of the album cycle. You know, we'd done a live um, shoot at um, Giant Stadium, but that was in front of, you know, over 70,000 people. And it was, and it was a stadium show, obviously. Um, I don't know if most people are aware of this or not, but when we shot Jungle, uh, the band actually played live instead of lip-syncing. Hmm. Um, you know, because they, <laughs> they found that a little bit preposterous although they understood that, you know, when you're trying to sync sound with image, that's why people lip sync in their, in their, their videos. But the band wanted to play live, and it was just up to Nigel Dick to do his best to sync up. And, uh, you know, that was how it was going to be. Um, but anyways, we went into the cat house, and without question, from that period of time, that cat house show had the most incendiary live performance that we'd filmed to date. And it's, I can watch the live footage and go, yeah, fuck, there it is. I mean, most people like to talk about the Ritz show and say, there's Guns N' Roses. The Ritz show is almost laconic compared to how intense they were at the cat house. And there was a lot going on and a lot of reasons why that intensity was there. 
but it's brilliant footage. It really is. And then Axel wanted to put in some S&M stuff that he shot with Aaron. Um, right. Unbeknownst to me at the time, he quietly arranged this with Nigel, Nigel Dick. And when I went into uh, look at the footage and sit with Nigel and uh, start to um, get a basic edit on it, there was all this, you know, hanging Aaron off off the door and putting a ball gag in her and beating her ass and stuff. And I'm sitting there and going, yeah, this is going to play really fucking brilliantly. Nice move, Axel. Fucking brilliant. So at that point, um, I said, we're not going to go with one more track and Geffen don't want to go with one more track and we're just going to shelve it and we'll put it out later and, you know, we can put it in a collection or something, you know, and just got it off, got it off the table. Ironically, when Aaron divorced Axel, she went looking for copies of it and masters of it to make it a part of her complaint. Um, so for it to come out now, I mean, you know, I hope he asked Erin whether she minded at this point. Um, but it's, you know, I'll say it bluntly. It's the great band being compromised by the one individual again. Hmm. Um, do I think it's appropriate? Now, I think that's a bit personal. I mean, if you want to make, you know, bondage tapes with your girlfriend... You know, keep them at home, Axel. I'm not sure the rest of the band want to be associated with it. It, you know, and it's just another marker of Axel thinking it's my band. I'm in control. We're talking about a stellar Aquarian here. I don't know if you've spent any time in astrology at all. Um, I wish I had when I was younger and learned more about it. But enlighten me. I'm a Virgo. Enlighten me. Well, well, Axel is a stellar Aquarian. Look at his chart. Look at where the placement of everything is. That is a motherfucker of a chart that he is born with and has to live with. Uh, I believe Clint Black and Garth Brooks are born on the same day. You said our first interview. You said in our first interview when you looked at Axel's chart, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, that's that's a hell of a thing. It really is. Um, You know, and there might be some astrologers who say that Sociopathy might be inherent in a in a stellar Aquarian chart. Um, certainly, they can see where there's an excessive desire for control, um, and it might even extend to coldness and meanness. Um, I don't know if Axel's ever been associated with those observations, but again, you know, with this video. Um, Acts, we, we, we were going to shoot something about the band. Now it's about you and Aaron and kinky sex. Yeah, no, I shelved it. Uh, and I'll tell you, I've, obviously a lot of people have got in touch and said, did you see this was out? And I took a look at it, and it's been expensively transferred, and it's a re-edit of the original edit that Nigel did. It's a different edit. Oh. Um, so, so they've spent time and money on it, and... Really? I mean, you know, whatever. I thought it was going to be taken out, the S&M part, given the, the climate of 2018. And I'll give it that. I, I mean, how fucking clueless, to borrow 
Fernando's word. <laughs> right. Can you be? Have you heard the name Harvey Weinstein? Have you forgotten, Axel, that you were on the cover of People magazine and the headline on the People magazine was Battered Beauties? I mean, get a fucking clue. Mm. I mean, this is this is not going to be accepted that well. Uh, Michelle Anthony, who runs uni, she's a feminist, for God's sake. I'm absolutely stunned that she has associated her company with the content. That blows my mind. I mean, I employed Michelle Anthony to replace Peter Paterno as the band's primary attorney back in the day. I thought it would be really good to have a brilliant and bright woman's touch involved in the whole situation. Uh, you know, and now I'm looking at this and going, Michelle, you were a feminist. What the hell have you agreed to put this out for? Hmm. And, 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 uh -huh. and at the end of the day, you know what the observation is? The observation is really simple. A brilliant piece of band performance is compromised by Axel's ego. End of story. So go watch it. You know, go watch that footage. It was intense. It was amazing. It was an amazing night in that club. And had somebody not been clueless in their management, they'd have been smart enough to sit Axel down and say, listen, let's just do the band footage and get the band footage out there because that really did capture a moment and an intensity. And you can watch that footage and go, yeah, let's see another band up there with that kind of vibe. To play devil's advocate, just, just to think, do you think Axel maybe just wanted the S&M thing in there and just it happened to be Aaron, it happened to be him instead of just using two actors to just kind of, you know, to go along with the lyrics of the song and just to have some sort of sex in there? Or do you think so it was about him and oh, Hold Aaron? on, Brandon. Hold mm -hmm. on, Brandon. Yep. You're telling me that you want to be the advocate, the legal advice for the devil? I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to make it well, up. And no, 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 I'm picking up on your terminology here, Brandon. You said devil's advocate. Right. Okay. Oh, well, yes, I guess. That's, All right. That's All just right. a coin of phrase, turn of phrase. Yeah, I know, but think about how terms of phrase that we take for granted. Did your mom not ever sit you down at the kitchen table when you were a kid and say, never try to defend the devil? You can't defend the devil. Don't be a devil's advocate. Okay. To use then to use another angle, maybe not to get away from that phrase, <laughs> not to take the phrase literally, <laughs> to use another angle. Perhaps maybe Axel wanted to use uh, Aaron and himself to make more of a story with the lyrics of it so easy. You know, devil aside, just to, to use uh, to use some like again, I could you knew him. I don't. I'm just wondering if, if it was maybe perhaps about that. No, it's, extra, it's extraneous and irrelevant. Okay. And when, you, and when you have live footage as good as, live, as that live footage is, I mean, that band is on fire. It's just wonderful footage. When you've got that, then you've got everything you need. And I'll tell you, back in the day, one of the battles that we used to fight all the time was between uh, 
video production people and the record label going, well, we've got to have a storyline in here because just looking at the band playing their instruments is not interesting enough. Bull fucking shit. When it really boils down to it, all you really want to do is see the band. I didn't need dancing girls when the Beatles were playing on the roof of the Savoy offices. All I wanted to do as a kid was see the Beatles play. Sure. I didn't need dance. If you didn't... I mean, I had a hard enough time with... Um, what was it? Uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Too much goofing around. I just wanted to see the band play. And a battle we always had back in the day, Brandon, was trying to get more of the band in and less of the producer's bullshit, you know, get the producer's bullshit out of it. And for me, I would say that with It's So Easy and the footage filmed in the cat house, Guns had potentially a perfect band video. And did the rest of the band really want to make it about Axel and his girlfriend either? I mean, you know, there's a certain imperious arrogance that that's forced on the rest of the band. Now, if the band footage had been lousy, you'd have gone, well, do we want to make the, the video anyway? And if the band, fitted, band footage had been okay, then maybe you'd have gone... Eh, do we spice this up with some B-roll and maybe get some travel B-roll? You know, the band had just come off a lot, touring a lot of dates. You, you maybe do that. Um, but no, I'm not happy it's been re-released. Okay. I'm going to credit that question. I'm going to sprinkle in some questions uh, when they come up organically. That's from uh, Tori for Glory on, on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if he or she wanted to, to know what was the reason initially not to publish uh, the It's so Easy video, and if you want to protect Axel from associating himself with domestic violence, and it sounds like to this day, yeah, you, you would like for that to have been the case. Um, then I guess to keep along with the theme of, of, of the box set, because the big thing about the box set, other than the price, was one in a million being left off. So they're conscious of, of that, of not using the N-word, not using the F-word, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, the homosexuals, but they, they, I guess they, it's, it's, it's a different, I don't know. It's, it's a weird way to look at it where one thing's okay. One thing's not, these words are not okay. Oh, there's the word that comes to mind and let, and, and let me credit Fernando for putting it in my consciousness. It's a little bit clueless. <laughs> it? Yeah, it's, it's yes, interesting, clueless or interesting, and I do want to say uh, after the fact because I thought it was it's funny because uh, when we were talking back uh, and forth setting up this interview, and you caught wind of of Fernando kind of criticizing the GNR fans, he did clarify later on, and I I understood at least where I thought where he was coming from at the time because there are some GNR forums and and some people usernames that that claim to know things or assume things and have no idea. They've, they're not with the band. They don't know these people, although they and they act like authority figures. You are different because you, you know, you you had relationships. You helped build this band. So uh, Fernando clarified that a little bit, but that can still be our Pee Wee Herman uh, word of the day, clueless. That's 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 fine by me. Uh, so you know, and 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 to be fair to Fernando, um, look, we we all have to start somewhere, and. One of the reasons that I chose to live in America and worked hard to get here and stay here 
was that the nation has a sense of meritocracy. And the country that I was brought up in, I was actually born in New Zealand, but I was raised in England. Mm. There is still this overlap of unseemly feudalism. And we just saw it with the wedding. And it's wonderful pageantry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the, on the other hand, it's fucking heartbreaking to me because I see all these people going out there and waving their flags at members of a monarchy. And, you know, let's get real here. Monarchies start with sociopaths and psychopaths who kill their rivals and steal. I mean, that's what British history is. One king killing another one to establish their dynasty and their, you know, and, and their line. And here are all these people out there waving their flag and paying taxes for these incredibly wealthy people to live in palaces and so on and so forth. It's weird. There is, yeah, there's still a sense of feudalism in England. And the aspect of that English feudalism that I find unseemly and reprehensible is that where you're born is where you belong. And that is contrary to me to meritocracy. Meritocracy to me says, according to your ability, your standards, who you are, you can progress and rise. And I always saw America as that. Um, so, and, and get me back on track here. What, where was the beginning of our... Well, leaving off because you know you gave your opinion on on it's so easy, and that has yet to be a controversy yet. Where everything in this in 2018 social justice era. Oh is, no, no, is a I know. I, I I remember where we were going. Yeah, with one in a million, right? No, yeah, no. I started off by saying, um, and, for, and forgive me for losing track. You know, doddering old fool. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I started out by saying. Um, you know, I have a certain amount of empathy for Fernando. Oh, yes, um, right. And I said, we all had to start somewhere. And that's why I wanted to make my point about believing in meritocracy, that if you have talent and you have drive, that you can rise up. Um, but I've got to say, from what I can see, I think Fernando's out of his depth. Um, the way the, the tool is rolled out... Um, his his recent comments, I I think the poor guy is probably somewhere where you know it's more than you should ask of him. Um, you know his 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 mom was uh, Stephanie Seymour's maid. Um, one thing I would say is obviously Beta and her family have created a domestic sanctuary for Axel that has worked for him, and they've done a brilliant job in that. Are they the right people to be running a tour of this size? I think that's open for discussion and debate. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps I'm being unfair, because if I recognize Fernando's out of his depth, I shouldn't criticize him, and maybe I should just say, sorry, Fernando, didn't mean it. Well, as you said before, you got to start somewhere. And well, I start Dude, I started out driving a van at Virgin right. for Richard Branson. I mean, you know, we all we all start out at the bottom. Um, 
one way or another, and I respect those who start at the bottom um, because they learn as they go and they have a better understanding of the whole process or idiom or arena that they're in. And, you know, well done for rising up. I mean, David Geffen started in the mailroom. Uh, his mother sewed corsets together on Long Island, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, okay. You know, David Geffen came up the hard way through the mailroom. Well done, David. Now you're on a yacht in Tahiti. Incredible. It's, but you're posing all these questions, which, you know, not just you or I have have asked, but just fans all about is just asking kind of just the, the rhyme or reason behind certain decisions. And I think when, when Fernando, he, he did go on after that initial comment he tweeted, he went on mygnrforum.com and answered some fan questions. And I think a lot of fans asked, like, we wouldn't speculate to this degree if there was more communication between the fans and the band. So that's, I think that's just created maybe why Fernando had to act a certain way. Maybe he wants to talk more, but has been told not. Again, that's just me speculating. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I always it's, just like, no. You, you've got a perfect idea, Brandon. You probably wouldn't be bothering to talk to me if Axel or Slash were available for interviews and talking for themselves. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a pale stand-in. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go that far, but I know what you mean. Yeah, you know, I'm a pale stand-in because you can't get who you really want and who you should really get. And, you know, I have to say, go back and look and see if you can find interviews with me or even photographs of me back in the day. You know, I, I was the very definition of low profile. I let my bands do their own talking and their music speak for itself. Um, you know, but as I've gotten a little older, um, I've tried to be a little bit more graceful um, in responding to people like yourself and to the fans. And, you know, if somebody wants to know my memory or my opinion, well, I'm kind of flattered that you still fucking care. Um, hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. There should be, you know, there should have been other bands come through in the interim that take your interest. You know, it's it's a little sad to be sitting there and going, my God, we were basically the last major rock and roll band. You know? Yeah, I, I, I it, guess it, it would be nice to have, it, what are you saying, like a new band that I would be obsessed with? Yeah, I guess that could, that could be the case. And we often speculate. And that's when I, I like how GNR sometimes uh, takes new bands on, on the road. Uh, I believe we're going to have a, our second interview since, you know, this is your second. We're going to have on the, uh, for the second time Tyler Bryant from Tyler Bryant in the Shakedown. You know, but they, I don't know, sometimes it's like what's what stuck with you from your childhood? And GNR is that for me. And I'm lucky enough. I, we're all lucky enough. I mean, we as the fans that they're still relevant and, and, and playing shows. I know it's been well, interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what should be relevant about Guns N' Roses, and it's, you know, at an occasional dinner or something or having a beer with somebody, I might look at them and go, all right, sucker, you tell me. What does Guns N' Roses actually stand for? Um, and sadly, I don't always get the response I want, but the response I'm looking for is this was an entity that stood for the worth of every soul. And I'll use the line out of the song again. Even the souls of urchins from under the street. And they weren't afraid to talk 
truth to power and they were anti-establishment and anti-authoritarian and i think those are all thoroughly worthwhile aspects of a creative entity mm -hmm. and that's what that to me is fundamentally what gnr stood for in the moment in the early days when we hadn't sold a record and you know duff's looking at me and saying nib do you think we can actually do this when you know i'm telling them what to expect on their first trip to england Mm. You know, utterly worthwhile to to represent that, and that to me is the best of Guns N' Roses. That it's the worth of every soul, and and fuck the man. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and that's what initially got me into them, and also some uh, the, the deepness uh, there, where it is you know fuck the man, damn the man, save the empire, to use another quote. But you know, I came in with my age group was. The November rain and the estrange, where there was that that damn the man, but also that that deep thought that really uh, a certain energy that they put out that other bands didn't. It was a nice mix of of anger and emotion that I identified with and I still identify with. That I even got off with Chinese democracy that was on there. So I, I, that's what I that's what I like in my music. That's what I like in my in my movies and my friends. I like a mix of anything can happen. But there's more to you. There's a deeper meaning to who you are and how you operate. And that's what Guns N' Roses is to me and why I've been doing 65 episodes of a, of a podcast about them. But to use another uh, quote that you have used before and actually had to correct somebody on Twitter, when you called uh, Izzy Stradlin the heart of the soul, right, of GNR? Yes, not heart and soul, but heart of the soul. Right. So yes, uh, that, that 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 was the correct statement that I made, and I feel that very profoundly. Um, I feel that you know, and it was it was interesting to me that uh, in the Wall Street Journal piece. Um, you see, you picked up on it. That's where I'm segueing it to. So yeah, this but, is the last part of of Shotgun News, where is he? In case if I mean, if you haven't been on the internet the past few days, I know this podcast is that we try to be in real time and do it as much as possible. But, uh, Neil, Neil Shah of the Wall Street Journal. Right. And I mean, you know, reading a Wall Street Journal piece is a little bit like trying to, trying to chew glass. I mean, <laughs> okay. You know, it, first of all, it's way too short. Secondly, it is far too formal. And, you know, the Mr. Rose, you, you know, the Mr. This, the Mr. That, it, the formalism of it is a little odd. But I'm, I was very intrigued that Neil picked up on a quote from Duff's book, which I haven't read. Um, but there's a very interesting quote from Duff out of his book about Izzy that, you know, I think I would, I would tell anybody who's listening, check out the Wall Street Journal piece. It's worth it just to read that quote. I'm going to bring that up right now because the quotes, uh, of course, that's like the one I didn't write down. So while I'm looking up that quote, uh, let's get to another thing that Izzy mentioned in the article, and that is, of course, not being a part of the in the reunion. So he told the Wall Street Journal, uh, my non-participation was simply not being able to reach a happy middle ground uh, through the negotiation process. That's life. Sometimes things don't work out. Do, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any, because I know you, you, of course, you broke on this show that he was involved in a sound check. Do you know what the negotiation process was? Do you know, well, is there anything well, deeper you can tell us? Well, let, let, let's get something straight and clear first. I didn't break that news. Um, 
fact that Izzy went out to uh, um, wherever it was, it was Nashville or somewhere like that. Um, yeah, I knew of it in the moment, but it was also all over a GNR chat room where somebody who was there and hanging out with the band was talking about it, and they put it up in the chat room, and no one seemed to care then, but, you know, apparently Axel got upset when I mentioned it. Um, but, you know, yeah, he did turn up and, and do a sound check, and he did leave after the sound check, and obviously something upset him. Um, what I'm not a party to the negotiations. I'm not in the room. I'm not even really a fly on the wall. Um, you, but you can draw your intelligent conclusions, you know. Um, obviously, something was wrong with the negotiations. And I think when you have a situation where um, one member of the band is taking 50% of the income, it doesn't take a fucking rocket scientist to figure out why the negotiations didn't work out as regards the fiscality of it. Well, then, because I'm not a rocket scientist, so what do you think it was? Uh, this was, do you think it was, like, what his role was going to be? Maybe his involvement in what the box set was going to be? Again, I know you're not Izzy, and I'm not asking you necessarily to speak for him, or, or if anything, just give your opinion on what that could be. Look, it's no secret that from my personal and probably intensely personal point of view that I have stated in public before that if you sat me down and said, you know, who was, and this is why I wanted the Duff quote, because this is basically what Duff says in his book. Can you, you paraphrase? Know, yeah. Who's the major factor in the band? Who's, who's the primary factor in the band? I put it more bluntly and said it was Izzy's fucking band. I mean, he was the one who moved to the city from Lafayette first. He was the one who got the foothold in Los Angeles. He was the one I always relied upon for a response when I needed input from the band. If, if Duff was too drunk, if Slash was too high, if Axel was on the radar screen, I always could count on Izzy. And not only could I always count on Izzy, but I could always count on Izzy creatively because he is a wonderful rock and roll writer. And to me, the best of Guns N' Roses comes from the marrow of Izzy's bones. You know, play Dustin Bones. <laughs> they, you know, there it is. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, you know, maybe Izzy and I were fated to have a certain empathy together. Um, we're born almost exactly 10 years apart. You know, I'm April 7th, he's April 8th. You hmm. know, and, and we used to hang out together on, you know, when we were touring. You know, when others were asleep or nodded out or crashed out, Izzy would be the one who'd want to go and play tourist with me. Hey, Niv, let's go and look at this. Hey, Niv, take me here. Hey, Niv, let's get an airboat and go chase alligators on the bayou. Sure is. Let's go. I can get credit to, to set up because when we're getting to so many different uh, questions, of course, getting into the Izzy part. So we can, for the sake of putting this monstrosity together, this this podcast, we'll... we'll 
and the uh, the shotgun news part, and we'll get into the specific uh, question uh, part of this. Yeah, and, I need. And there's there's Izzy related questions, and this all relates to it. If that if that's cool with what, you. What, what, well, hold on here a minute, Brando. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm just an old fool on the hill with some sort of degree of memory and my own perspective which is not necessarily going to be everybody else's perspective but the one thing i would say is brandon i'm not an archivist you know i don't you know gnr was a part of my life it doesn't define my life it doesn't consume my life sure um and i don't spend an awful lot of time you know writing down in notebooks oh we did this t-shirt here and we did this there and so on and so forth i mean you know Basically, you're dropping a bucket down the well and hoping there's a little bit of water in it, you know, that I can remember. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, and that's why in our first interview we, we spoke about Alan the Man. You know, you growing up and everything, you know, I wanted to get your whole story. And I know some of the questions that I get are, are just are, are that, people just asking for specific dates and questions and when was this made. So it's ridiculous, but it's just me trying to add production value into – this podcast that that's yeah, all well, I'm, I'm just giving you a heads up that you know if somebody wants to know you know um which way the wheel spun on the third day of the 15th week of this particular oh sure sure and by the uh, way i found the, the the duff quote i'm the wrong person to ask you know i can i can't remember all that shit no then then you can say i can't remember that shit we move on uh but okay. before we move on that that gnr uh, excuse me the the duff quote uh from his book it was uh, Izzy was probably the most significant force. Thank you. In that group, so that was the quote. So, uh, that's, that's the quote. Yes. So with that, let's. And I have another soundbite as we shift to a questions, which is, which is still going to flow in the in our conversation. But again, I don't know. I'm a radio guy. I like to have production. So this is just another. What are my uh, stupid sound bites? Fan. Session. Yeah. Was it worth me setting it up? Probably not, but again, just production value. Because we got so many uh, questions of whether or not you can answer them. Uh, well, it sucks for the people who ask them. I'm just, I'm, I'm just enjoying having a conversation with you. So, um, with I guess to bounce off what we were talking about, and I just want to credit the people that just to let them know that I am reading your questions. This is from uh, uh, Sorab Brownstone. Don't think that's his last name, but I, I still like it. So was it, do you think Izzy was willing to go on a full tour with guns? And you know, I don't know, want to say a dollar amount because that's probably unprofessional to ask. But as far as his involvement, like what was he offered? Because there was a, there was a conversation, and if he, you may not have had this conversation with Izzy at all, so you can just say fuck it, I don't know. Fuck it, I don't know. <laughs> that's, see, that's perfect for me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I'll just ask this one uh, as uh, actually, you know what? Uh, let me see where I go. There's so many freaking questions I got. Uh, so then we also asked, and I'll give this this uh, credit to uh, JJ Kings, Kingsley. I believe this was on Facebook. So you don't know what happened in Nashville that caused uh, Izzy to leave after the sound check? Fuck it, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, you know, I'm just obviously people ask me, you know, what do you think? And I'm just speculating. Sure. You know, if, a guy, if a guy travels all the way out there, does a sound check, and then leaves and doesn't do the gig, um, I think it's fairly safe to assume that he wasn't in a good state of mind, that something upset him. Um, you know, who knows? 
Maybe Axel wasn't there to shake his hand and say, hello, lovely to see you, my brother. My God, look how far we've come. I wish you were on the whole tour with us. Let's at least go out tonight and see how it goes. And Maybe we can factor you in more. And, you know, we can work this out because you're my brother and you were the one who provided me with the base to move from Lafayette to Los Angeles. Maybe if there'd been a little more brotherly love there, he might have stayed and played. I don't fucking know, but yeah. I'll speculate. Yeah, that, that's what we're all doing. And I know you were told from a you know a reliable source. That's how you, you know just the fact that he was there. Uh, let's just go down the, the list of questions so I'm not bouncing around too much. Not all of them are, are too crazy, so don't worry. Uh, this is from Alex Mendoza. Do because when in the Izzy article he talks about you know he's constantly writing. Uh, do you know if Izzy is preparing a new album, a tour, anything, or is he just still chilling out riding his motorcycle? Um, it, well, he rides a mountain bike. He's become very health conscious and over the years, and surfing and biking, uh, mountain biking, uh, I think are you know two of his greatest pleasures. He loves to travel. Um, I don't think he particularly cares to be Izzy straddling of Guns N' Roses all the time. Um, who knows, you know, when he's going to put a record out because he never tells anybody. He doesn't promote it. He just records it and puts it up on, on, on digital media. Um, you know, somebody made, made it an amusing, what to me was an, an amusing observation that Izzy had put out, what, nine times as many records as GNR in the same period of time? Mm. And most people don't even know that he's putting music up on, on, in, into the ether in, that you can download and you, you, you can play. And there's some terrific songs. Um, you know, obviously, you know, he can live off the residual income of his publishing and the royalties he's supposed to be getting. Um, and... He finds happiness in this way, and he finds contentment not being a part of some fucking big, huge machine tied to Universal Group worldwide and all of the pressures there, because fundamentally, he's a rock and roll musician at heart, um, as opposed to somebody with profound ambitions of the ego. Because he was he was establishing himself um, after he left GNR, of course, with the Juju Hounds, which you managed as well. So uh, this is coming from uh, uh, Xavier uh, Aranda on Twitter. Are there any professional live video recordings of Izzy and the Juju Hounds? Uh, I don't think we did do any live filming. Um, it's hard for me to remember. Um, we shot videos. Um, we basically, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong because it was a long time ago, but I seem to remember that we shot video for two, maybe three songs in one go to get it all done um, with Vance Burberry. And, um, but in terms of, shooting, of filming a live show, I don't recall doing that. Okay. I know we 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 recorded a couple here and there, and I would tell you that if you're into the Juju Hounds, there is uh, a five-song EP that we put out um, 
a little bit after the release of the album that is just smoking and shows you what a terrific band they were. See, that's something else. Like, if you wanted to continue, uh, you know, doing something with the Juju Hounds or solo, I feel like he has established his... his and it's no disrespect to, like, I love Gilby Clark, but Gilby Clark is, he still puts himself out there. Gilby Clark, formerly of Guns N' Roses. Izzy can still be, he's a name. He's still a name, whether he wants to do something with Juju Hounds again or, or do solo. Um, you know, maybe we can ask, and you set this up, so I'll thank you. I mean, I thanked you off the air, but I'll thank you again, because a future guest of ours is going to be uh, Jimmy Ashurst. So maybe we can ask him these questions as well. Uh, Save it for Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy. Jimmy's got you know, he was he was there every day, you know. So save that question for, for sure for Jimmy. And the only thing I'd say is, what somebody does and what somebody doesn't do has an eloquence. And the fact that he doesn't go out there and tour with the band tells you something about is his comfort zones and what he feels like doing. Yeah, he's a musician. He likes to write. I'm sh- he likes to play with people every now and then. Does he want to go through the mechanism of recording, uh, of uh, touring? Um, apparently not, because he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a very fair point. Just to do it on your own, because I he likes playing guitar or writing, and yep. it doesn't yep. necessarily have to be on a stage and have to go through the whole thing with touring and merchandise. And yeah, no, that, that's a lot. That's a lot. So I I can understand that. Uh, then I guess this relates to, and this is another question from uh, Tori for Glory on, on Twitter. Uh, he or she asked a lot of good questions. Uh, this was, why did the Juju Hounds not tour with any bigger band at the time? I'm wondering if this has to do with Izzy just not wanting to be part of a big band. Uh, and why did the gig tour with Keith Richards and the Winos not come about? Like, did he was he interested in becoming very successful with the Hounds at all? Um. Well, there's a big mouthful there. I mean, first of all, how do we define success? True. And, you know, occasionally I would offer the perspective that success can be seen as a figment of an envious mind. Um, people think you're living the life, whereas in point of fact, you're unhappy. Um, but they think you're successful, and they probably view it purely on fiscal terms. Um, True. Money doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness. Um, but back now, he did do one show with Keith and the expensive winos up in San Francisco. And I don't remember exactly why it was we didn't do the whole tour, but we did do the one show with him up in San Francisco. Um, so... My memory there, I'm, I'm afraid I can't, can't be enlightening. Um, what I do remember is that John Bon Jovi was very, very keen to have Izzy open for him. Hmm. And Izzy basically looked at me and said, Niv, I'd rather play clubs. Um, he didn't want to go through the machine. And I don't think he wanted to be a part of that kind of a tour. Hmm. And it still seems like he's sticking, for lack of a really bad pun, he's still sticking to his guns. He just likes doing what he does, and I respect that completely. Because uh, yep. people just might think, like, okay, this is a, a well-known person who writes hit songs. Why isn't he going out doing it? What's wrong? That can just be what he wants to do. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of what Kurt Cobain was. And he just was sucked into the machine and didn't want it. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you have to do what 
it's ex, you know well, quote unquote expected well, of you. Or is that no, a bad I'm, comparison? No, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to buy that, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, if you sign a contract with a major record label, and Geffen was certainly one of the primary and most successful labels ever. Um, if you sign a contract with an entity like that, then you're looking to work with the people who work in that entity. And you're working with people who are excellent at their jobs, which is getting you press, getting you promotion, and bo boosting your profile and trying to sell as many records as possible. So if you sign with a, a label like that, it's a bit disingenuous to say, oh, man, I didn't really want it. it. I think what it comes down to, Brandon, is, you know, we, we live through certain archetypical events and processes. And I think the archetypical process here is be careful what you wish for, because once you become somebody of that kind of profile once you have the problems that come with it and it's you know if you if if you've got money in the bank it it solves all the problems you had when you were poor however it gives you a different set of problems and they can produce just as much anxiety and stress on you as the problems you had before and i think it's a case that with kurt cobain that once he became kurt cobain he started to go, I'm not sure this is really what I thought it would be, and I'm not sure that I'm happy with it, and I'm not sure that it makes me happy. And in that respect, maybe Kurt and Izzy share an experience. Because, you know, with Izzy, I, he never expected Guns to be as big as it was, mm. and he wasn't very happy when it became that. You know, look at what he did with Juju Hounds. It was, let's go theaters and clubs. Let's dial it back. Um, let's concentrate more on the music. I don't want to spend three years making an album. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, I, I appreciate your insight on that. Let's get to some uh, some lighter questions, not so uh, in, in, intense. Uh, this was, I don't know, I've never heard this rumor before. It's a silly rumor. Uh, this is from uh, Steve Bennett from Facebook. Is it true that Axel wears sneakers in the pool, and this started a fight on tour between him and Dizzy? Well, first of all, I'm going to point out that I wasn't the pool boy there at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I've no fucking idea, do I? <laughs> that's, that's a fair response. <laughs> I guess sometimes I just like to ask silly questions that are put out to me, and I, and I appreciate the silly questions. I want everyone to, you know, who's listening, whether it's serious, you know, nothing uh, inappropriate. Sometimes people ask, like, inappropriate questions as far as, you know, what the mindset was during addiction or – you know, if they like, sometimes like it does cross a line, so I don't, I don't enjoy asking those. But those fun like questions, please send them out. That's what makes GNR fans so great. Uh, this was uh, from I believe on, on Twitter from a uh, Gunner Gunner. There was a discussion on Facebook earlier about a Guns and Roses movie. If this happened, who would Alan like to play his younger self? Oh, good God! Um, <laughs> I've never given that a moment's thought. Hmm. Um, I don't know why, well, but Russell Crowe just popped in my head. That's really interesting. Hmm. 
tell me why that popped into your head. He has that he has that force about him where All right, now I'm going to blow you away. Okay. Because this is something that my uh my beautiful wife has pointed out to me. Okay. He was he was born in the same nation I was born in. He's a New Zealander. He was born in Wellington. I was born in Auckland. We share a birthday. Look at that. Look at that. We are we are exactly 12 years apart. Could happen. See, I knew he was from that region. Obviously, I didn't know how close to home he was. I'm not going to yep. pretend I did my research before. That just literally popped in my head. But there's this... where wow. he, he plays wow. characters that are very forceful. And also very soft, and I and then I get that from my my conversations with you, where you can be very fa- forceful and stern, but there's a very genuine, you know, lovingness about you, and that's what I've gotten from his portrayal. So, uh, well, if that ever comes to light, credit me. <laughs> what a very kind thing to say. That was very kind of you, Brandon. You're welcome. And he's a handsome man, Alan. He's a handsome man too. Yeah, yeah most most people think oh, I'm just a fucking asshole. But, <laughs> um, you know, and and that actually, let me just make a quick comment here. Sure. Um, even one of my very dear and closest friends has made the comment to me, oh, you, you know, you're a little bit of, what was the uh, manager of Zeppelin's name? Um, Peter Grant. He said, oh, you had a bit of a Peter Grant reputation. And I go, that's fucking bullshit, you know, on so many levels. First of all, better looking. Didn't weigh as much. Um, didn't have the cocaine habit. Uh, can write songs. Can produce records, and can obviously handle more than one band. You know, um, but I understand that you know it's an easy accusation to make against anybody who's managing a rock and roll band who stands up hard for their band and won't put up with shit. And occasionally you have to do that. It's like flicking a switch. It really is, Brandon. It's like flicking a switch. You try and explain something to somebody, and if they don't get it, and if you're in a pressured situation and time is not on your side, you flick the switch, and you go into hard mode, and you dress the person down, and you tell them why they're going to do it the way they're going to do it, and then you flick the switch back, and you become yourself again, and off you go. Um, when you're managing any band, but God knows when you're managing a band that's going through the stratospheric process that a GNR went through, at times you have to have a straight and steely spine, and you have to stand your ground, look after your band, or get somebody to react quickly and do the right thing. So if that makes me Peter fucking Grant, then I'm Peter fucking Grant. <laughs> I couldn't do what you you do or what you did. I get to uh, I have that that Seinfeld thing about me, like uh, the George Costanza, like everybody has to like me, kind of thing. Unless you're like you're malicious to me, then I you know go fuck yourself. But so to someone in in your you know in your position at the time, and I'm sure a lot of managers' positions now, regardless of the artist that they they manage, it's just they're afraid that you know if you go too hard, you're gone. You know, you're fired, and then that's it. Your your whether your meal ticket or your reputation or anything is just gone. You you go as the artist goes. So it, it just it says a lot about you to, to kind of have that balance to know when to to be forceful, and to know when to I don't know 
whether it be well, a father figure or a brother figure or however your approach was? Well, exactly. You have to do that. Um, for me, it was never a job. It was an occupation. It was, was not defined by office hours. I wasn't nine to five. What I was involved in was a way of life. It was 24-7, 365. And if you're going to do the job properly, you have to approach it from that point of view. It's a way of life. It's not a job. And I've met countless people who treat management of bands as a job. And within that, there's a sense of expendability as regards their client. Because if, you know, you're going to clock out at 6 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night, that means you're not as connected to your artist as you should be. If you're going to be seriously connected to your artist, it has to be permanent. Um, yeah, because they're a living, breathing person. Yeah. Because now, that, that's uh, going to be 24-7, whether or not they're playing a concert or, or whatever. They still have uh, needs. Like, every person yeah. has needs. Oh, needs and demands. Um, right, yeah. And on, and on top of that... You are the one who is protecting your artist. And sometimes you have to protect them from themselves, too. It's so easy video, for example. But the other thing is, you know, I was dealing with a guy called David Geffen. And it's fair to say that people were terrified of David. Um, I have to say that he always kept his promises to me. And he never lied to me. But he could be in your face. I mean, I remember walking into his into his building one day and he's coming down the stairs to the front door and as we pass each other, he pushes me up against the wall and literally gets his face about three inches away from mine and with a certain amount of vehemence says, when am I going to get my fucking record? <laughs> you know, because he wanted to sell Geffen. He also wanted to put out Use Your Illusions before he sold Geffen because we estimated that within the first two weeks of the release that we were looking at about $100 million in um, retail activity around the world. So you think he's motivated to get his record and he's in my face and he has no problem undermining other people. But what was the only thing I could say back to him? When it's fucking ready, David, <laughs> you'll get your fucking record. And he, and he just stands there and looks at me and then turns around and walks away. That was good enough for him. I mean, you had to stand your ground. Sure, yeah. In that that instance, yeah. No, you have to. I think you find out uh, from both ends, from your perspective and, and, and Geffen's perspective, like who you're really working with. Is this person going to stand up to me or are they going to back down? You really find out what you're made of. And that in well, the, when you're in, confronted in that, like that. In in that particular instance, you know, I walked out of the building and went, you know, if David thinks I'm not going to deliver in time, I don't think he'll have any problem with sticking a, a knife in between my shoulder blades. And as I was driving home, I went, you know what? I think this is where David's head's at. Um, we got Appetite for Destruction um, out of the band when Eddie Rosenblatt wanted to drop them before they even did any recording. And I think David looked at me and said, hey, well, he delivered for me before, then I'll trust him to deliver again. Yeah, hopefully. And I always look at also, like, where is this person coming from? Did this person have a an experience like that before where, 
you know, they thought they were going to have something delivered and they were let down, stabbed in the back. And unfortunately, that's taken out on you or, you know, someone else. So I, tr- I always try to have that perspective as opposed to just thinking someone is just a dick. Uh, but that's... Ah, David wanted the money. <laughs> I can understand Let's that. Let's get fucking real here. David wanted the money. I gotcha. Well, when you're dealing with that dollar I mean, amount, sure. Yeah, did he get married? Did he raise a family? Did he have kids? No, but he built a huge bank account that now supports his yacht in Tahiti. That, those are his, his yachts are his kids, I guess. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, another fun question. We'll see where this one goes. Uh, this is from Decal on Twitter. What was Alan's impression of the GNR song, It Tastes Good, Don't It? And does he know if there is a studio version uh, that exists? And also, if the two-parter, uh, if there are any G- uh, GNR tours that were in the works, but then never materialized during his tenure. Thanks. Oh, well, we were supposed to, well, we got half a tour done with Iron Maiden. Uh, we were supposed to open for ACDC, but that um, invitation was retracted after the riot in Phoenix. Um, David Lee Roth at that time was uh, saying that he'd take the band out, and after the Phoenix in- invitation, that disappeared. Um, you know, and famously left us with just one option, and that was going out with Rehab Aerosmith. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the irony of ironies is if you were to ask me over a bourbon quietly, I'd say the magic moment for me, for Guns N' Roses, was that Aerosmith tour. That's when they were most consistently fabulous on stage. Because it was a sober tour? Well, like, how come? No, it's just where everybody's heads were at. They were opening for Aerosmith. Uh, they had the an incredible reaction from the fan base because the record was exploding, uh, which gave them incredible confidence in their in their uh, performances. And quite frankly, I felt sorry for Aerosmith having to follow them every night on that tour. But that, to me, is the high watermark of the original and actual Guns N' Roses, hmm. the Aerosmith tour. Hmm. They they were consistently wonderful. Very cool. Uh, so what about the uh, the first part of his question? Uh, it's, it tastes good, don't it? Did you did you like that song? Is there a studio version? Uh, no, no opinion. Can't even remember it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, another question. This relates to your your beloved box set. Uh, do you th- <laughs> do you think it was a pity? This is from uh, excuse me, our, our friend uh, Remco from the Netherlands. He's actually going to be doing a. Uh, a live stream for us on our Facebook and, and, and Twitter at the GNR show in Berlin uh, in, in uh, a few days. He's going to be our, our uh, Netherlands uh, European correspondent. Uh, but he, he wants to know if you, Alan, think it's a pity that the demo of Corn Shucker to not, was not added to the AFD box set. That was, a, I guess, a tongue-in-cheek kind of question. Uh, I'm a little weird in, in these respects. Um, but you can actually go back and you can see where... You know, I actually applied my weirdness professionally. Um, I always thought it was fun if there were things that were difficult to get, that you had to work to get, that weren't released everywhere, that weren't put into the machine for for a mass reaction, that there were little things that you dropped and seeded. I, I used to do this an awful lot with Great White. You know, I'd put an EP out in Japan that wasn't released anywhere else. I'd put an EP out in the United Kingdom that wasn't released anywhere else. Just little nuggets that you could just drop and throw around and just 
for the fun of it rather than for the uh, single mindset of we have to maximize the profit on every single thing that we do. Um, that for me, for me personally, was part of keeping it real. So the fact that Corn Shaka is not being pushed by Universal Worldwide, I actually like. Go fucking find it. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. I, I liked how there are these random songs that I have on my iTunes or I can only find on YouTube and did the YouTube to MP3 downloads that I can't find anywhere else that no one no one knows about. I don't know. That makes me feel like more of a GNR fan and uh, yeah, exactly. It, yeah. You got it. You just said it. You just, what took me five minutes to say, <laughs> two lines. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Uh, and also the first part, because you mentioned the uh, the Aerosmith tour. This was, uh, Remco also asked about uh, this, and a different tour. This was um, 1987 with Faster Pussycat. Well, do you have any recollection of, of that tour? I can only imagine the the craziness that was faster and GNR touring together. Well, I do remember that one of the poor unfortunate members of Fast Pussycat got gaffer taped and dumped in the snow outside the band hotel, um, which I thought was a bit mean, but, you know, apparently Duff and Slash thought they had reason to do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the other point I'd make is, you know, even my wife does this and, and looks at me and goes, oh, you know, you live such a hedonistic life. No, I didn't live such a hedonistic life. Most of the time I was a fireman putting out fires, hmm. you know, and I had to be on the ball 365, 24 hours a day, you know. For me to go spinning off in hedonism at any point, I had to choose that moment really carefully and who I was with because... I was representing an entity. I had to maintain respect of other people as well as the band. And, you know, shenanigans was not on my work list load for the day. Um, you, had, you had to stay on the ball. I, I can't, I, I just don't know how, uh, that's why I, I love, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this part of, um, you know, our email uh, conversations, but when you were talking about, we talked about hockey and some of the perks that, that would sometimes help you with the sanity of, of GNR. I think it was, I don't know, it was like something you got from Wayne Gretzky or I forgot what it was oh. specifically, but it was just like, you know, the little perks that you get that kept you sane during these times. So, uh, yeah, just you being the fireman, uh, well, that's something it, else it, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't handle. You're, you're fundamental... And the reason why you're there is just like the ticket buyer, you want to see a great fucking show because that's what everybody on the crew and in the management is working for, is for that band to be fabulous on stage. And if you got that, that was your number one. I wouldn't even call it a perk, but... That was a number one essential. But there were these little aside things that, you know, people were interested in the band. So the fact that I was able to get, you know, um, from, from my eldest kid, um, sticks, jerseys, pucks, photographs, all signed by the great one. And all I had to do was, you know, trade my um, 
my Canadian gold appetite destruction with Gretz, I mean, first of all, I was kind of amused and honored that Gretz wanted the gold record. That's so cool. You know, that is cool. And, of course, my kid was over the fucking moon <laughs> that, you know, he's, he's getting a captain's jersey from Gretz signed to him. And, of course, it, you know, the whole thing is with memorabilia. Um, the value of anything signed is always diminished if it's personalized to a particular individual. That's true. But let me tell you, absolutely everything was too Corey, and that was a far more meaningful. It wasn't like, you know, we're putting something aside that we can sell later. It's no, this goes into a, into a display case and it goes up on the wall. And it gets passed on to his kids. So, and, yeah. and it's no one else's. It's not like, you, it, you know, it doesn't need yeah. the certificate of authenticity. It wasn't bought at a, you know, a card exactly. shop. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, believe you me, there are, there are very few musicians who impress or intimidate me. But standing in front of the great one and shaking his hand, you become a fanboy. You're like, <laughs> oh my fucking God, it's the great one. Fuck, you're brilliant, you know? Yeah. And, you, and it's really humanizing because it makes you a fanboy again. Yeah. and uh, I, I, It's good that was, that was never lost on you. It's like uh, Don Henley introducing me to Carl Perkins. Mm. You know, it's like, Oh, here comes fucking Henley. We'll we'll have some words, you know? and, he, and and he's he's got this big guy standing. And as they're coming through the backstage area towards me, I feel my body shrinking because my consciousness is going. Oh my God! Do you realize who that is? That's Carl fucking Perkins, blue fucking suede shoes. I used to sing that song with my mom in the car mm-hmm. when I was six years old, you know. And you become a fanboy again, and that's. It's good that you can become a fanboy every now and then. You have to be, like, because that's what we all are at the end of the day. You know, I'm obviously a fan. Let, let's get let's get something straight here. Sure. Um, I am a fan of Guns N' Roses at their best, and that said, uh, and I think it's understood that you know, the way I look at it is Axel and I have a perfectly authentic relationship. I don't blow smoke up his ass. You know, and I will say things that I know he doesn't want to hear. I don't give a shit. He, to me, he's just Axel. But that collective, in the moment, on a stage, when they were on, were better than the Rolling Stones to me. And I'm a huge Rolling Stones fan. Hey, I believe Ozzy said pretty much the same thing, that they, if they didn't break up, they would have been the next Rolling Stones. So that's... Well, that was that was my little wish and desire that they would become their generation's Rolling Stones. Well, to me, they are. Yeah, in a way, but you know, look at the fucking catalog that the Rolling Stones. Uh, have. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, when you've got a keyboard player on stage and he has two files in front of him with two hundred and fifty songs in, and Jagger might call an audible out of any one of those so- songs. I mean, holy crap! Hmm. Just overwhelming, overwhelming. This is a, and you know uh-huh. I look at the Rolling Stones and I go, yeah, but you know, if you'd only done Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, and Sticky Fingers, I'd have been delighted with that. Hmm. Those three albums are just the apex and just sublime. Hmm. 
Well, this recent, this last uh, you know few minutes of our conversation lead into the uh, the last couple questions that uh, we got for you. Then uh, I'll let you go and, and get prepared for well, not game three. That's not going to be for another day or so. Uh, but this is from uh, a, a big memorabilia collector in the GNR universe. Actually, he was contacted by GNR to get something for the your beloved box set. Uh, this is from uh, Tim Tricoli. And you, he said, like, he was nice about it. And this could be one of those, like, I don't fucking remember. He's like, he said, uh, you can ask him this on or off the air. It doesn't matter. He just wants to know for his mindset. Uh, just trying to get to the bottom of something. Was Live Like a Suicide a huge hit in the UK or not? And is that why they got on the cover of Kerrang! with the June 11th, 1987 issue and why they scheduled those 19, uh, excuse me, June 87 marquee shows? Uh, well, you've got to bear in mind, huge, <laughs> huge hit. We only print, printed 25,000 units of Live Like a Suicide. Um, and obviously, I wanted to make sure that uh, a certain, you know, some of them could export into the United Kingdom. Um, so numerically, it wasn't a huge hit, but it did the job it was designed to do, which was connecting to influential members of the press over there. Mm. Um, for example, Kerrang! And also you have to bear in mind that, you know, I'd, I'd been working with another band for a few years and had done independent releases because no one was interested in signing the band. And then, you know, with live like a suicide um having done indie releases on uh, motley Crue, berlin great white um i knew the value of getting out there and setting a little bit of a foundation that a major label could build on um so no it wasn't a huge hit but i had my relationships with, with uh, various people in the press you know, the Malcolm Domes, the Sylvie Simmons, et cetera, et cetera, um, through having done, you know, Too Fast for Love as an independent, having done Out of the Night and Shot in the Dark with Great White as independents. So there was a, they were receptive. They were going, well, Niv seems to be going in a reasonable direction. So what's this one he's got? Yeah, we'll take a look at it. Um, you know, it was easier for me to get through the door than maybe some others because a track record had been formed. Um, but the main function of, of Live Like a Suicide was to start to generate the responses out of the UK press because my whole strategy for breaking the band was aimed through the United Kingdom. Hmm. No, that makes sense. And that's... It obviously worked. <laughs> so kudos to you. All right. And uh, I guess the uh, last question for you, because uh, I know we, we've spoken about it a lot. And Alan, I mean, this has just been uh, amazing. And this might be, this could be one of those, like, I don't fucking know responses, but um, I guess your opinion on it. And I'll paraphrase this question from uh, Steve uh, Mabiano. What do you think it'll take to get all five on stage again? And of course, talking about the Appetite Five. I know what you talked on before about Izzy. Maybe he needed Axel to take him out to dinner or something like that. That's just your speculation opinion. There's no that that didn't happen as far as your what you're saying. But do you do you, like what do you think it'll take? And do you think that it will ever happen? I am so tempted to say I don't fucking know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what I would say 
is it would take grace and brotherhood. And for those who are to make that decision, to have a sense of brotherhood and a memory of how it all got put together. And if that memory can be revived, if contemporary egos can be put aside, and if there can be a little brotherhood in it, then I think it might be possible. I like to think so. And I also uh, have clarified, I've enjoyed like all the members. I mean, I haven't, I didn't get to see, you know, of course the Cat House show or the Rich show because I'm a little younger. You know, this reunion, you know, I guess the reunion of the three is the first time I've ever seen Axel and Slash on stage. I never thought that would happen. So I'm happy with what we, what we have now. But for, as someone who's never seen the original five on stage at once, it's just I, I can only imagine what my smile would do because when I was well, at it, it, it's really simple. What is out there now is living off what was created by the original five, and it would be really sad if that were not acknowledged by the original five. Even if it's just a one-off pay-per-view. Right, yeah. A one-off, and that's what I, I started everything with while people are still alive. I think that's really important because the fact that they're, they are all still alive, uh, you know, Slash died, Adler died at, at all at some point, brought back to life, kickstart my heart. But the fact that they all are, are still here, uh, I think it's just, it's just huge. In fact, you know, because we've been losing so many people in, in the rock world recently, and it would just be a shame for you know, what could have been. So uh, that's, yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah. Um, I think it's really simple, you know, Brandon. Um, if the five of them can recreate in their consciousness the perception of we are a band, which they were at one time, instead of certain, certain egos deciding that they're more important than the other, or wanting to be controlling, if they could just remember when they had nothing and everybody was against them and remember what it took to be together and to be supportive of each other, and to be brothers, if they could do that, I think they could do it. Well, from your... What, what's the, the the phrase? I'll use a different phrase, not with, a, with, with the devil. I'll use a, a one that's more palatable. What is he, he said, from your lips to God's ears? That's, the, that's another phrase? Yep. Okay. That, so. one, that one I'm fine with. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, because, because ultimately I'm of the light, and I like people being of the light. Right on. Well, you are of the light. You certainly have enlightened me in our conversations on and off the air. I mean, it's really just a, a pleasure to get to know you. And I've, you know, even before our conversation today, I thanked uh, Mitch LaFon again for, you know, connecting you and uh, you and I. And I appreciate all just like the nice things, you know, you, you said to me on well, and off the air. So it's just, uh, yeah. it means well, a lot. Brandon, you're very welcome. I'm very flattered that you want to hear an old fart go on. <laughs> um, and, you know, to those who love the band, yeah, it's a band worth loving and... Although there's, you know, obviously history says something else. Um, you know, in my own heart, I have very, very warm memories. And when people ask me what it was like to live through it, I'll tell them 
It was fucking stressful. It was a fucking nightmare. If I thought everything was going well, it probably meant there was a phone call I'd yet to um, return. But ultimately, as a life experience, it was a fucking amazing privilege and very informative to me about what life is and what life isn't. Um, it answered an awful lot of questions for me to go through that experience, and it's an incredibly rare experience. How many people get to go through that? You can you can almost do it on your feet and your hands. If that, you know, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and I told you... An amazing experience. And I told you before our conversation uh, today on a very... Uh, a lower level, I feel like that just being in radio, you know, it's stressful when things are going right, it's not going to go right, but it's been quite an experience and not many get to, uh, people get to do what I do. Even this uh, podcast, which I guess do out of love, which is not my my day job. But uh, since you are more than just GNR, I'm just going to leave you by asking, is there any bands you want to uh, promote or talk about? Because I know last time you gave us a song from the band uh, Razor, but is there anything you want to, you know, tell us about, share, anything you, what you're doing now, uh, anything that we, we should know about Alan Niven currently? Uh, I'm not sure it's appropriate to be shilling, you know, other people, you know, when we're talking about, you know, a different entity. But, you know, I'd, I'd state the obvious. Um, there's a reason why Slash had Chris Buck play with him. Um, not just because I asked him to, but because he rates Chris Buck as a really fantastic guitar player. If you're into really fantastic guitar players, check out Chris Buck of Buck and Evans. Just an amazing player. Absolutely, because since that's because you mentioned him the uh, the first time around. So I mean, if you missed uh, Alan's first interview with us, the fact that he mentioned Chris Buck a second time, uh, don't wait on it. Absolutely. So uh, thank you, Alan. Obviously, you're always welcome back. Uh, we don't always have to talk about, I mean, yes, it's a GNR podcast, but if there are other things you want to share experiences oh. about, you want to talk about the light, you want to talk about Great White, you want to talk about hockey more, of course, you'll... Brandon, you'll... Brandon we'll keep in touch, but sure. I think you've had enough of me for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely understand. You've given me my, more than enough, and I appreciate it. Uh, so we will be in touch. You know, uh, Go Capitals for me. Go Knights for you. And yeah, it has to be, because they're a desert band. And, you know, you talk about the uh, uh, McSorley curse, uh, which I love tweaking your, your friend Mitch with. <laughs> um, I have to root for the desert band because, you know, that just makes it a, a little bit more sweet when I can tease, tease LaFon about the cup still resides in the lower 49. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, uh, I, I, and of course, any, anybody who knows hockey is going to turn around and say, "Yeah, how many Canadians are on the team?" Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> hey, I, I told you, I, I never thought I would root for the Capitals after that Dale Hunter hit on Pierre Turgeon when I was a kid. I mean, that ruined my childhood. Right. But I, 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 I just like Ovechkin. And it would just suck for me, again, as an Islanders fan, to see the Vegas Golden Knights win a cup before the Islanders did. The Islanders haven't won since I was born in 1983. So to have the Knights win a cup before the Islanders? Well, think about how St. Louis fans feel. This is true. This is very— Or Toronto. When was the last time Toronto won, won a cup? Uh, you know, I know. Here we're talking about the major city in Canada. 
they haven't won a cup since when? Was it 1968 or something? It's been a long, long time. That's why part of me was rooting for Winnipeg. But something. But I do appreciate you taking your jabs at Mitch. So <laughs> we'll see. If anything, we'll, we'll just trade. Uh, we'll have a nice uh, email back in uh, a three-way conversation when the Cup Series is uh, is over with. But again, Alan, thank You're you welcome. so much uh, for your time. Very welcome. You you enjoy uh, your mountain in the desert, and uh, we'll talk. I certainly, certainly shall. Pleasure. You got it. Talk soon. And there he goes, the passionate Alan Niven, the former manager, of course, of Guns N' Roses, if you didn't know that already. Uh, again, that wraps up uh, episode 65 of the AFD show. Thank you to everybody listening, feedback. It just it means so much. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the AFD show on Twitter at the AFD show. Uh, you can subscribe on, of course, on uh, on iHeartRadio, on the iHeartRadio app, on Spreaker, on SoundCloud. I do want to say something, though, quickly about iTunes. Yes, we're still on iTunes. The episodes are there, uh, but the it's not on currently as I'm doing this episode, not on the main page. Because there, you may have noticed that there was like a recent GNR 93 show released and it was take, being taken down off a bunch of different uh, fan sites due to, uh, quote, copyright infringement. Uh, I won't give these people the, the time of day uh, too much on my platform, which I've earned. But there have just been some nasty GNR trolls in the universe. And if you peruse the forums, you know who they are, who just put out... BS copyright claims because they're just, I don't know, angry at the world for one reason or another. So that's unfortunately has affected uh, me a little bit with the uh, the iTunes stuff and even our Rod Jackson interview. Uh, but that's still available on Spreaker and iHeartRadio. Uh, but just some angry, bitter people out there, which is just really a shame because this is just this what I've created this platform for is for people all across the globe to connect and yes, talk about Guns N' Roses, but to talk about rock and roll, to talk about their lives, to talk about whatever you need to do. Just knowing that everyone, this is a place where if you like Guns N' Roses, you can hang out. And actually, even if you don't like Guns N' Roses, this is a place where you can get a hang, you can hang out. Because I've gotten some feedback saying, I don't even like GNR, but I like your podcast. I like the conversations you have with people. And Alan was an example of that. That's a cool conversation, whether you like GNR or not, I think. So, uh, again, you can find us uh, everywhere. I'm always uh, accessible on Facebook and Twitter if you have any questions, if you have any um, suggestions as far as uh, guests go. I, I definitely listen to you guys. Uh, this is a, a living, breathing entity, just like how uh, Alan had to be 24-7 with GNR. I have to be 24-7 with this podcast, even though the episodes come out every week or so. So, uh, until next time. Uh, what is going to be uh, the next interview? Well, I believe we're going to be talking to Jamie Hunting from the Outpatients, uh, West Arkeen's band, and I believe it was actually just the anniversary of his passing. So that's going to be um, a heavy conversation, but hopefully we'll we'll crack some smiles in that combo as well. And just, um, oh, and uh, hopefully, you know, he said yes at some point, but we mentioned Steve Thompson, who, Minch, who uh, mixed uh, Appetite for Destruction. Uh, he's going to be a future guest at some point. There's a lot of cool things happening. Uh, behind the scenes so uh, please feel free uh, to reach out to me uh, whenever okay I'm here for you so until next time when is the next AFD show going to uh, pop up well in the words of Axl Rose concerning Chinese democracy I don't know if soon is the word but you'll see it
I'm going home. 